On November 25, 2010, a mother drops her three sons off for a routine visitation with their father on Thanksgiving holiday. They are never seen again. Though the father's story has changed many times, he's serving a sentence for kidnapping, we still do not know the truth behind their disappearance. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Skelton Brothers. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. All right, so jumping straight to it, we are drinking Bell's Two-Hearted IPA. Which is, of all the IPAs I've had, it's my second favorite. It is delicious. What's your first favorite? It's called Pliny the Elder. You can only get it in Colorado, Oregon, Washington, and it is brewed in California. But it is amazing. Russian River had some friends smuggle some out of California. It is freaking excellent, man. Totally off topic, but I finally had Bearded Iris Homestyle IPA on tap. I bet it's better. It's like Nectar of the Gods better. Though we haven't spoken of such a thing in a long time, that would be my third favorite IPA. And if you are an old school fan, you would know that we went through a phase. <laughs> we were in love with them. <laughs> we <laughs> thought of them for a while. We should have never gave up on trying to get... We might want to reach back out to them and see if they want to sponsor the old podcast. I'll see if I can send them a t-shirt and see if they send us some swag. No, man. Say, tell them that if they want to sponsor us, they can just literally send us a case of beer a month and we will fucking sing their praises to the rooftop. I'll have the Homestyle... I'll have Bearded Iris's logo tattooed in the middle of my back if they sponsor us a case of beer a week. Fucking bet. <laughs> tell them that. <laughs> You want some free marketing? Tell them that. Back of my, <laughs> back of my buddy, he got this symbol. Looks like your beer symbol. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have any uh, lovely new patrons or five-star reviews to go over. That's because we are recording this immediately after our previous episode because I'm going to Charleston and I'm competing, so we can't record. So we week. will catch up. The following week with, hopefully, a lot new Patreon patrons and more of your lovely reviews. But tonight, we are jumping into the highly requested case of the Skelton Brothers. Police say three missing boys may be in extreme danger. A frantic search in the town of Morenci. The search for three missing boys growing more desperate with every passing hour. We know their dad lied to police. The brothers are ages five, seven, and nine. They're from the town of Morenci, Michigan. An all-out search near the Michigan-Ohio border. The FBI now getting involved. This community is beginning to fear the worst. Still no sign tonight of Andrew, Alexander, and Tanner Skelton. On Black Friday of 2010, the day after Thanksgiving, known for hop- holiday shopping deals, three young boys, all brothers, went missing from Rincey, Michigan. Andrew, the oldest of the brothers, was nine. The middle child, 
Alexander was seven, and the youngest, Tanner, was just five years old. Marinci sits just north of the Ohio border, about 70 miles southwest of Detroit and 40 miles northwest of Toledo, Ohio. Local schools holds both middle and high school students. And in 2020, the graduating class was 63. Sheesh. At the time of... a pretty small town right there. At the time of their disappearance in 2010, the graduating class was 36. The boys' parents, Tanya and John, lived on Congress Street in a peaceful neighborhood just a couple of blocks west of the school. And if you are a true crime junkie that despises people like Scott Peterson, Chris Watts, Casey Anthony, we're about to introduce you to a man that has all three of these pieces of shit wrapped up into one body. (laughs) Yeah, this guy is, is a piece of work, man. I had a very, 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 very strong negative opinion of him until I watched a documentary on YouTube. And Do you feel sorry for him now? Because I still want to punch him in the throat. I mean, I'd still punch him. <laughs> okay. But it did give a little insight into his... It, Narcissism? Yeah. It. I mean, they still painted him in a very bad light, but you got a little bit more of sympathy. I started out with no sympathy for him whatsoever. And, and you might have a sliver? I ended it with like 10% sympathy. 10? Yeah. Damn. It was a big... We'll big, have to watch this. Big jump, yeah. Okay. It's it's called Black Friday. Okay. If you look it up on YouTube, it's Skelton Brothers Black Friday, you can find it. So in 2010, John was 39 years old and was originally from Jacksonville, Florida. After high school, John would join the Army where he would work at Walter Reed Hospital He would move around, and he spent some time in California and Alaska. He married Tanya Zuvers in 2002. Both Tanya and John were each married previously, and now Wiser felt that this one was the one that was going to last. After the wedding, the two would buy a house on Congress Street in Marincy, Michigan, Tanya's hometown. John had a daughter from his first marriage, and Tanya had two daughters from her previous marriage. Together, they would have three sons. Andrew, the oldest, loved playing outside and playing video games. He was described as too smart for his own good sometimes. Of the three boys, Andrew was the shyest. The middle boy, Alexander, was the daredevil. He loved riding his bike, climbing trees, getting dirty, 110% all boy. Alexander was always getting into trouble of the mischievous kind. He didn't do anything bad, but he was always... The little, the one you had to look out for. The youngest Tanner was the storyteller of the bunch. He loved making up stories so believable that family members would hang on every word. Then he would giggle and tell them that he had made the whole thing up and he was just pulling their leg. John was a truck driver until he got a DUI and lost his job. He would have to take odd jobs that paid a lot less after the DUI. This ultimately put a strain on the finances and on John and Tanya's relationship. Tanya was a stay-at-home mom attending a local community college working towards a business degree. Problems escalated when John couldn't pay the bills, but 
seemed to have money to buy his beer and cigarettes all the time. In 2009, John would spend some time in jail for failing to pay child support for his daughter from his first marriage. Now, Tanya Zuvers was no saint either. In 1998, while she was still married to her first husband, she pled guilty to a fourth-degree sexual misconduct after having a sexual relationship with a 14-year-old boy that worked on rental properties that Tanya and her first husband married. Now, this is going to lead credence to the stories that John's going to tell about what happened to the boys. Because this is going to be, he's going to refer to this as the, you know, the start of everything. And it's going to really muddy the waters for investigation, investigators to find out what happened. Now, the young man in question was a minor, so the details of this... He's like 14. Yeah. So the details are sealed, and there's not a lot of information out there that, concerning that, that, and it, the way it should be. Having sex with a 14-year-old is bad, okay? Okay. You really shouldn't do that. No, you shouldn't. Don't do that no more. Now, it is described in some articles as consensual, but we're dealing with a 14-year-old, and that is not anywhere near the age of consent. And Tanya was nowhere near 18, so this is still unexcusable on her part. Once Tanya's first husband found out about said incident, he divorced her. She was very forthcoming when she met John, explaining exactly what had happened, and John was not concerned with it and never brought it up. He did marry her and have three children with her, so it would appear he was of the mindset of let bygones be bygones. In September of 2010, she assumed that her and John were in a good place and that he was happy. It was not until after John returned from Florida from his high school reunion that he would begin bringing up moving to Florida. He felt like he would be able to find a better high-paying job in Florida more so than he would if he stayed in Marinci. He also felt like it would give his sons a chance to get to know his parents and his family better. His parents would live, or still live, in Jacksonville, Florida. Tanya was not even remotely happy about leaving Michigan. All of her family, along with all of the boy's friends and her friends, all lived in Marinci. She despised the hot, humid Florida weather. And also, since she did have a felony conviction, it would require some legal wrangling to up and move out of the state of Michigan. On Monday, September 12, 2010, Tanya took the boys to school. When she got back home, John explained to her that he was heading to work and he should be back around noon. She told John before he left that when he returned, she would make some phone calls and see exactly what she would need to do to move to Florida. Tanya and her daughter Courtney would run some errands in town while John was at work. When she got back home, she had a message on her answering machine from the school. The school secretary had stated on the message that John had come in and checked all three of the boys out of school, telling the secretary that they were leaving for a family vacation to Florida. The secretary called Tanya due to the fact that Tanya had dropped the boys off that morning with their medicine and lunches as if they would be staying the whole day. Also, the secretary felt like that if the family were headed on vacation, Tanya would have explained to her that John would be 
checking the boys out early. Tanya called John and was like, what the fuck? Why did you tell the school we were going on vacation? John proceeded to tell her that they had already discussed this, and Tanya had told him that she didn't want to go and that he and the boys could go without her. She was like, the hell I did. We talked about moving to Florida, and I specifically told you that I would have to make some phone calls to see what I would need to do to leave the state permanently. To say that she is livid is uh, an understatement. So she calls a friend and vents to her friend, and her friend contacts the Marincy Sheriff or Chief of Police, depending on what article you read. We will, or I will refer to him as Chief Larry Weeks. Chief Weeks felt like that he could possibly play mediator and talk to John and get this all sorted out. So he calls John. John tells Chief Weeks that he was still in town just driving around because he did not want to go home with the boys. He then tells Chief Weeks that they were indeed going to head to Florida so the boys could see the beach and the ocean, but he had to wait for some time to meet with a lawyer before he left. Upon hearing this information from Chief Weeks, Tanya becomes concerned. The sheriff is now also concerned. There are red flags flying everywhere. People do not meet with a lawyer before going on vacation you are planning on returning from. Also, the sheriff becomes more alarmed when John tells him they would not be returning for three to four weeks. The sheriff asked John why he would take his kids out of school for that long since Marincy's school year had just started. John tells the sheriff that he was planning on enrolling them in school in Jacksonville while he looked for a permanent job. Again, this is not your typical vacation behavior. Tanya knows that John will not be able to enroll the boys in school in Florida without their birth certificates and Social Security cards, which she had at their house on Congress Street. She calls John to try and convince him to come back to Marincy to get those items. Unbeknownst to John, Tanya's older two daughters were headed to a lawyer's office on Tanya's behalf so that she would know what steps needed to be taken to keep John from leaving the state of Michigan with the boys. The lawyer explains that the only way to keep John from leaving Michigan with the boys is for Tanya to file for divorce and request an emergency custody writ. So Tanya convinces John to return to the house so that she can locate the paperwork so that he is able to enroll the boys in school in Jacksonville, Florida. Tanya just needed to stall John long enough so that her daughters could return from the lawyer's office with the paperwork. A police officer was waiting to serve John with the divorce papers. This would make it illegal for John to take the kids out of the state. So John returns to the house. The two older boys, Alexander and Andrew, stay outside playing in the yard. But Tanner came in the house with John because he wanted to see his mother. So Tanya puts on a show looking, air quotes, frantically, throughout the house for the paperwork to stall John. Her daughters called to her to tell her they have just left the lawyer's office and to stall just a little longer. Now, we often hear of one thing happening that changes the course of history. Irony that just happens to decide to show up and the, at the least opportune moment. In the case of the Skelton Boys, it happens just minutes after Tanya receives a call from her daughters. What no one was aware of at the time 
was just by chance, Tanya had used the same lawyer's office that John had an appointment with at 4 p.m. that afternoon. The lawyer's office calls John while he is at the house watching Tanya, quote, search for the birth certificates and social security cards to inform him they must cancel his appointment due to the fact that they are now representing Tanya and cannot, by law, represent him as well. That's crazy. That's my drop-in. That's my that's my contribution to this show. <laughs> <laughs> Two, Whoa, no way. <laughs> <laughs> out of over 200 lawyers in the county, both John and Tanya chose the same one. That is really, that's pretty coincidental. Or is it? Dun, dun, dun. What are the chances that out of 200 lawyers, you and your husband choose the same one? And it's not like they knew the lawyer previously either. It was purely by chance. Dumb luck, shit luck, whatever you want to call it. Upon receiving the call from the lawyer's office, John loses his proverbial shit. He begins yelling and screaming at Tanya. While the argument is going on, Tanner hides behind his mother's leg. John yells for him to get in the truck, and he refuses to leave. John storms out of the house and tells Andrew and Alexander to get in the truck. He takes off and nearly runs over Tanya's sister as she is walking up the road. Less than a minute after John leaves, Tanya's two daughters and the police officer arrive with the divorce paper. John drives all night and arrives in Jacksonville, Florida the next morning, which just so happened to be Tanya's birthday. So Andrew and Alexander call their mom to wish her a happy birthday and tell her that they are at Hillary's house, swimming and playing with Hillary's daughter. Now Tanya remembers from John talking about his high school reunion that Hillary was one of his classmates. So she tracks down Hillary and heads to Jacksonville with the divorce paperwork, her two daughters and her mother in tow. Now, five days had passed since Tanya had last seen John and her two sons. It's also, I need to note that the youngest boy, Tanner, is with her as she heads to Florida. Now, upon arriving in Jacksonville, Tanya meets with a deputy to explain what is going on and to get someone to accompany her to Hillary's apartment so that she can serve John with the paperwork. By now, the local Jacksonville authorities had become involved, and Tanya and John were both told that they could not leave the state until they went before a Jacksonville judge. So on Monday, Tanya shows up to the court with a local attorney to find John waiting with his own attorney. Once in court, Tanya is flabbergasted when John tells the judge that he left Michigan with his two sons because Tanya was a registered sex offender. Now remember... John knew of Tanya's past when they began dating, and there was no problem. He didn't bring it up to anyone while they were dating. He didn't bring it up to his family. He married Tanya knowing this about her past. He had three kids with her knowing this. But now, all of a sudden, in a courtroom in Jacksonville, Florida, he decides to bring it up. Yeah, as he represents himself like an idiot. No, he's got a lawyer at this hearing. This is the... Oh, it's later on. Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's a genius fucking move, too. We'll get to that. Name, name, how many people have gotten away with crimes by representing themselves? 
Zero. Yeah, I think it's close to zero. The Jacksonville lawyer that Tanya hired blast John for this antics. And the Jacksonville judge calls Judge Margaret No in Marincy, Michigan, and that's NOE. And she is the judge that signed the emergency custody writ. Judge No tells the Jacksonville judge that Tanya's past has no bearing on the current situation or the divorce proceedings and is irrelevant. She further explains that John had kidnapped his two sons and fled the state. I mean, knowing that he was going to be served with divorce papers. Irrelevant? Ah, In a divorce proceeding, it would be irrelevant. I don't know, man. Well, the fact that he married her knowing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, he knew he married her. All right. All right. Let's go along the lines of this. I'll concede that. They meet. She's forthcoming and says, look, before we go any further, I, I need you to know, you know, I'm registered sex offender, explains what's happened. They continue to date. He doesn't see a problem with it. He proposes, gets married. He doesn't have a problem with it and has and fathers three children okay. with this woman. All right. Well, I mean. I am not excusing yeah. her past by any means. That is, in my case. Incorrigible. Yes. I have no <laughs> excuse for anyone that but has you, sex with a minor. But you make a fair point. I will I will concede that, sir. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Don't ever hmm. it's never gonna happen again, so take it all in. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> take it in, brother. Take it in. All right. So Judge No further explains that John, like I said, kidnapped his two sons and fled the state, knowing that he was going to be served with divorce papers. Tanya had to track him down to get her children back, so John is in the wrong, according to Judge No. Jacksonville is not wanting any part of this Jerry Springer train wreck domestic domestic situation. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. And tells both Tanya and John that they are to leave Florida immediately and drive back to Michigan. Really? You're saying that Florida's... uh too sophisticated for a crime like that for a case like no, this. No, but I can guarantee you this is how it probably went down. As soon as that Jacksonville judge got off the phone with Judge No in Michigan, he was like, nope, we ain't touching this Hell shit. Hell no. <laughs> Y'all gonna get your shit. Y'all gonna drive back to Michigan. You take his rednecky shit back to Michigan. Yeah. We got our own problems. We don't need Michigan's problems coming yeah. down here. Nobody's ever heard of Florida, man. <laughs> no. Now, the judge does state to both Tanya and John, that between Jacksonville, Florida, and the Ohio-Michigan state line, they have joint custody. But once they cross the Michigan state line, the boys must be in Tanya's vehicle. She would have full custody and the discretion to allow John visitation rights. So now we're back in Michigan, and John changes his mind, and he wants to work things out. After what he had put Tanya through, she decides that she must play alone because she is afraid of what may happen if she tells John to hit the road. So she tells him that the whole family should go to counseling to see if they can make things work again. Tanya meets with her attorney and explains that she cannot trust John ever again and she will never forgive him for taking her children from her. The attorney explains to her that it would look favorable on her part if she would allow John visitation rights. Tanya decides to a separation, and John agrees, thinking that this is just a step to mend the wrongs. 
So John is going to stay at the house on Congress Street, and Tanya is going to move into a vacant house that her daughter owned with the boys. Now, this house is just two blocks away from the Congress Street house, and John can see into the backyard from his house. Tanya believed that this was the best situation for the children. They were close to their father and their friends. This arrangement was during the week the boys would stay with Tanya, and on the weekends they would stay with John. So this rocks on pretty well for about two months. The weekend before Thanksgiving, John, in his infinite wisdom, decides to tell all three boys that their mother had been in prison. And he tells them why she had been in prison. Now keep in mind, he is telling a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a nine-year-old about basically statutory rape. And it is at this point in my research that I started to not what? research. research. <laughs> this is where, in my investigation, I began to not like John very well. No, and he ain't even represented himself in court yet. No. So upon returning to Tanya, the boys are visibly upset and tell their mother about what their piece of shit father had just told them. They expressed to Tanya that they were extremely worried that she would have to go back to prison and they would never get to see her again. Tanya, being the better person than I, told the boys that there was no way she would ever go back to prison and they had nothing to worry about. She calms their fears and tucks them in bed, and once they're asleep, she immediately calls John. And an argument ensues. John had asked to have the boys during Thanksgiving break from Wednesday to the following Friday. So you're looking at he wants them the day before Thanksgiving, and then he wants to return them nine days later the following Friday. Tanya let John know that that was not going to be an option, and the plan now was the three boys would go to Tanya's mother's house on Wednesday, November 24, 2010, the day before Thanksgiving, and John would pick them there, pick them up from there that afternoon. She tells the boys that she will see them on Friday, November 26, 2010. So now we get to November 25th, 2010, which is Thanksgiving Day. John calls Tanya asking her a million questions about the status of their relationship. When are you moving back in? When are we going to be a family? Etc., etc., etc. Tanya tells John that it would take some time for her to be able to answer that. She reminds him that he took her kids to Florida without her knowledge and then tells her children that she is an ex-con that may be hauled off to jail any day. So now we get to Friday, November 26th of 2010. Tanya calls John and asks if she can pick the boys up earlier than agreed upon the 3 p.m. time. John tells her that that was going to be a problem because him and the boys were not home. So while she's talking to John, she just happens to walk to the back of her house and look out her back window, and she sees that John's van is still at the house on Congress Street. Hmm. Well, John crawfishes and says, Oh, yeah, see, some friends of mine came by and picked us up yesterday, and we spent Thanksgiving at their house. Yeah, it's kind of hard to lie when you live within sight. (laughs) So dumb. Yeah, this is just... But this is painting a picture of John that... Anyway... 
So after numerous phone calls and texts, John's story of where him and the boys are changes a lot, and I mean a whole lot. Yeah. Various stories. One of his stories is that he would see if he and the boys could get home early, but the boys were not even with him. They were actually with Joanne, a friend of his that had picked the boys up while he stayed at home, but she was supposed to have them back by three, just in time for Tanya to pick them up. This lady named Joanne. Supposedly, her name is Joanne Taylor. Tanya did not know Joanne Taylor, but according to John, this was the lady that while he was still a truck driver, he had pulled over to help with a flat tire. Her and her husband and their kids were stranded on the side of the road, and ever since helping them out, they had become, quote, real tight online sending each other face messages, Facebook messages back and forth. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Tanya is losing her mind that John would allow some woman that Tanya doesn't even know to take her sons without John being there. Tanya begins to panic and calls John again. This time, John tells her that he is headed to an Ohio hospital because he's hurt his foot. Upon arriving at the hospital, John tells the staff that he tried to hang himself and he fell 10 feet onto a concrete floor. The hospital checks him in on a mental health hold. Which, if you can't even tie a rope, I mean, <laughs> you definitely shouldn't be raising three boys. No. So Tanya calls her attorney. He tells her that she needs to wait until 3 p.m. since that was the time that they had agreed upon for her to pick the boys up. She explains to the attorney that John has lied to her about the whole Florida thing. He is in another state headed to a hospital, and a complete stranger has her children. And yeah, you're not waiting until 3. You can go, three can go fuck itself. <laughs> yeah, I could see Tanya going, look, attorney, get fucked. I yeah. am getting my kids. Yeah. But. Which no one would ever blame her for, for that. Somehow she finds the courage to wait. Ugh, not and it, me. No, I would have been burning down the roads. At 3.01 p.m. on November the 26th, the day after Thanksgiving, Tanya calls the police. Chief Weeks just happens to take Tanya's call and decides that he's going to travel to Toledo, Ohio to ask John what is going on. John tells Chief Weeks that he is not really sure where Joanne Taylor is actually at. He then relays the same story that he had previously told Tanya about the way he knew Joanne. He then reveals to Chief Weeks that he had been struggling for some time now due to not having a steady job, losing his wife, possibly losing his kids, and the holidays has not made it any better. So on Thanksgiving, he decided to let Joanne take his kids, and he was going to hang himself at his house so the children didn't have to see it, you know, being the fine, upstanding father that he is. He then reveals that Joanne was actually driving the boys to his parents' house in Jacksonville, Florida. So now, just to be clear... This woman, who does not know Andrew, Alexander, or Tanner, agrees to take them to their grandparents' house 15 hours away Thanksgiving night instead of driving around two blocks to their mother's house so that John could take his own life and Joanne doesn't question him or try to stop him from taking said life. Well, he's good. Right. He, well, I mean, he's got reasons for not wanting to the children, the children, 
the children to be with their mother. He's going to give reasons whether or not they're true or not. We don't know. Chief Weeks is not an idiot and knows that this is a load of horseshit that John is feeding him. He immediately issues an Amber Alert for the three boys and the silver van that Joanne is supposedly driving in. The FBI is brought in to assist, and authorities hit the ground running in an attempt to establish the known whereabouts of John and the three boys. And before we go any further, we call a spade a spade on this podcast. And we will flat out tell you when we think police are acting fools. Hmm. I cannot tell you how impressed I am with Chief Weeks from the little town of Marincy, Michigan. He did everything right. And this man may turn out to be a serial killer next week, but as of this moment right now, I'd buy this man a beer. Because he is not an idiot, he's using his intuition, and he knows he's out of his league, and he requests the assistance of the FBI. So they interview, the police do, a neighbor, and her name is Gail Johnson. And she claims that she saw the boys playing in the yard around 2.30 at the house on Congress Street on Thanksgiving Day. Not only did she see them, she gives a description of each kid. She states, Tanner was wearing camo pajama pants and a Scooby-Doo t-shirt. Alexander was wearing black pajama pants and a gray t-shirt. And Andrew was wearing brown pajamas trimmed in orange. Gail then goes on to tell authorities that she was sure that she saw them that day because anytime her and her husband were outside and the boys were playing in the yard, they would always yell hi to her and her husband. So a massive search begins for the boys in both Marincy and in Ohio. While the search was going on, Chief Weeks obtains a search warrant for the Skelton residence on Congress Street for any electronics slash computers that they could find. Tanya meets Chief Weeks at the Congress Street residence with her keys to keep the police from having to break the door down. This was a fruitless effort because John had nailed two-by-fours across the doors from the inside. So Tanya is in full panic mode at this time, fearing the worst. Police bust the door down and find what authorities liken to a scene of a home invasion. All of the furniture was busted. The dishes had been smashed. The mattresses had been cut open, revealing the springs. The cords to all the appliances had been cut. The house had literally been destroyed by someone in a fit of anger and dedicated to destroying everything inside the house. Authorities did find in the house a rope, a noose separate from said rope, bleach, and a bullet sitting on one of the stairs. According to old Johnny Boy, the noose was a, it was for a project, which he can't discuss since there's an ongoing investigation into his son's disappearance. The rope was for a climbing harness that he was making. And the bullet, well, you see, it was from a gun collection that he had owned while he lived in Alaska. But, you know, John didn't have any clever little explanation for why the bleach was there. Mm. A 
Authorities now have a starting point on their timeline. They are, or were, 99% sure the statement from Gail Johnson was accurate. So the boys would have been at the Congress Street address as late as 2.30 p.m. So they obtained John's cell phone records. The GPS location shows John's cell phone at 4.29 a.m. on Friday morning, leaving Marincy, heading towards Ohio. At 5 a.m., his phone is not pinging any towers, either due to the fact that the battery is dead or he purposely turned the cell phone off. At 6.46 a.m., the phone records show his phone back at the Congress Street home in Marincy. One of the last pings on his phone before it shut down was around 5 a.m., placing his phone near Holiday City, Ohio. Now, Holiday City is roughly 30 minutes from Marincy. Police were hopeful that due to it being Black Friday that maybe someone would have spotted John's blue van during the two hours and 17 minutes that he was on the road. So now we get to Monday, November 29th of 2010. Chief Weeks holds a press conference telling the media that while they cannot confirm that Joanne Taylor is a real person, they can confirm that John Skelton never had an online relationship with anyone of that name. The only thing on his Facebook page was his own post, and the last post dated Thanksgiving Day read, quote, May God and Tanya forgive me. Chief Weeks tells the public he was certain that John was driving near Unity and Holiday City, Ohio, and to please contact the Marincy Police Department if they had seen him, his blue van, or the boys. And he goes on to explain that the blue van that John owns is missing a gas cap, so that would have made it stand out. 200 volunteers. Really? I mean, you think the gas cap is going to be. Well, if you. Well, I, I read that and I was like you, but I got to thinking if you're driving, if you're just driving, and let's say it's a. It's not an interstate, but say a, a, a major highway, and you come up on a van and then you notice the gas cap's missing, it may stand out. One of those little n- nuggets that might, you know, jog your memory. Now, 200 volunteers along with search teams in Marincy, in Holiday City, the FBI requisitioned planes, helicopters, and tracking dogs. Cadaver dogs were brought to the landfill for Holiday City to search for the boys. You name it, it was used to search for these boys. The 200 volunteers were split up into teams of 10 with two firefighters per team. They were bused to the Lazy River Campground in Holiday City. And this is where the Skelton family had spent some time camping previously. Now, these volunteers are instructed to pick up everything they could find. Scraps of paper, receipts, old clothing, clothing scraps, trash, you name it, pick it up. The bad thing is, when they arrive at the campground... It just so happens to be opening day of deer season. Oh, no. And the campground is slap full. Mm-hmm. Not only are they now having to pick up trash, but they are also having to now search wooded areas with deer hunters who are not real happy that they are there. If your deer hunting is so important that you interfere with a police investigation, 
you're a dick. Could you imagine, <laughs> like, planning this deer hunt? We're going down there at campground. We're going to hunt some deer. I, I took two weeks off. You know, we're going to have a week's vacation. We're going to hunt. And then you show up, and you're like, well, damn, the FBI's here. Shit. <laughs> I, mean, I, get I mean, I get it, but. No, I don't. Granted, think I'm not a hunter, so I don't know how hard it is to find another hunting spot. But damn, dude, there's a there's a crime being committed. Yeah. Well, the the thing is, and everything I could research said that they never had any problems with these deer hunters. They okay. were all like, "Hey, we'll help." So okay, good. They wasn't, you know. But it, I just find it the shit luck that has befallen this case between the. One in 200 attorneys, mm -hmm. and then you're going to go search a campground that the family has been known to go to before, and it just so happens to be slap full of deer hunters. I just, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things, man, you just kind of shake your head at. Coincidence, man. Yep. All kinds of coincidence here. Now, John is questioned again at the Toledo Hospital. He now claims that he has not any recollection of what happened to his sons or anything that happened late Thursday night into Friday morning. Oh, what a very strong coincidence. I just don't remember. He did recall a dream in which he saw the boys in an abandoned school in Conkle, Ohio. <laughs> Conkle? Yeah. Nice. He couldn't remember driving to Holiday City, but he had a foggy recollection of a dumpster at the Ramada Inn there. In 2007, John Skelton wrote a poem about a body of a boy being found in a dumpster. It went into detail about what was going through this boy's mind as he died. The poem was titled, quote, The Dumpster, and he posted it to his MySpace page. And you can still find this poem. And if you would like to hear this sick shit, you are more than welcome to watch the YouTube video that Stephanie Harlow did. It's two parts that she did, and in part one, at the 46 minute and 44 second mark, she reads this poem. And I am not going to. <laughs> Authorities would find nothing at the school in Conkle or at the dumpster at the Ramada Inn. So now we get to Tuesday, November 20th, 2010. John is released from the Toledo Hospital and into the custody of the Lucas County Jail in Toledo. Here, he would fight extradition back to Marinci. Vehemently fight extradition. While in jail, he would be visited by his parents and his pastor. Now, we haven't spoken about their pa his parents, but they are... Odd. Well, not only odd, but they are 100% behind him more so than anyone should be. Like, how can you not be suspicious? Oh, hell no, them kids are fine. Yeah, she's... <laughs> oh. Oh. Mm. Ain't a damn thing happened to them kids. And y'all should take his word for it. Y'all ain't listening to his side of the story. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. His parents would tell a story of how they believe everything John told them, everyone is against John, and they should take the time to learn his side of the story. Now, the pastor, however... She had a different take on her visit with John. She stated that John told her that there was a big blank spot in his brain, and he didn't know where the boys were or what happened. And in an interview with Channel 4 News out of Detroit, she is visibly upset recalling this. She is on the verge of tears. He told his pastor that, quote, he hadn't taken the boys home, not to their mothers 
or to their family, but he had taken them home. And as his pastor, she should know what that meant. Mm, that's fucking ominous right there. Yeah. Oh. John's relationship with his family is complicated, to say the least. According to John, his mother had contacted him a week or so prior to Thanksgiving. She had offered to drive the 15 hours from Jacksonville to Morency and drive him 15 hours back to Florida. She was hoping that this would be what John would need, a fresh start. But the catch was she would only come get him. No kids. She set an expiration date for this deal on the day before Thanksgiving. John wanted to move to Florida and start over, but he did not want to leave his kids with Tanya in Marinci. According to John, he felt like he was running out of time and his back was against the wall, so he made a decision that he regrets. He does not elaborate on that. Authorities confront John with the evidence from his own computer that shows that Joanne Taylor is not real, and he made her up. John explains to police that she is real, but she is part of a secret group that removes kids from abusive situations. He goes on to state that he had discovered that Tanya was abusing his sons, and he reached out to this secret organization knowing they could help get his kids away from Tanya. They were the, quote, Amish Avengers. They were made up of Amish, Mennonite, and reorganized Mormons. He then admits that he does not know any of their real names because they used aliases like Virgil and Elijah. And it had been in Niles, Michigan, where he had first met the Amish Avengers on November 1st, 2010. So let's recap some of John's little stories here. Let's, let's, just, let's just, you know... Wrap our minds around this. We have Joanne, who is part of this secret group, a man named Virgil, who John met in Niles, a man named Elijah, a woman named Sue, not a boy named Sue, <laughs> and two children named Mary and Alex. How does one just meet all of these people and just randomly bring up that your children need rescuing? Yeah, well, even to take it a step further, that documentary I referenced earlier, they went and they interviewed the Amish community, several people in the Amish community, and they were like, no. Yeah. And she was like, are you sure? And they were like, listen, basically they were like, listen, lady, we're a pretty tight-knit group around here, and if three random kids just showed up, we would probably notice. And call the authorities. Yeah, like, and who's going to take them in? Like, just random someone's just going to take three kids on? That's a lot of responsibility. So, yeah. According to John, when he met Virgil, he, quote, confessed that he did not want his children to stay with their mother who was abusing them. Virgil offers his assistance. Within a week, John finds a manila envelope in his mailbox containing business cards and pamphlets on an organization called the United Foster Outreach, UFO. Coincidence? I think not. Also in this manila envelope was a burner phone that John used to call this group. After contacting the group, he dumped the phone and burned the paperwork. Oh, how convenient. <laughs> Boy, this is definitely a case of convenience. 
John states that this group would visit his home while the boys were there so that his boys could, quote, get used to them. On November 25th, they showed up to his house with Amish-style coats for the boys to wear. John let these people take the kids, thinking that later they would contact him or own or how he could find them so that he could come get them back. What is an Amish-style coat? I don't know. Look, it's like trying to smell the color orange at this point. (laughs) If if you know what the uh, Amish-style coat is, please reach out. Mysteriousbrews.com. Mysteriousbrews... at gmail.com. At gmail.com. Uh, Mysterious Bruce group on Facebook. Please reach out. <laughs> An earlier tale from John was that he had driven the boys to J.D.'s truck stop in Niles, Michigan, and that is where Virgil took the boys. Another version that John would tell is that he wrapped the boys in blankets in the van and gave each of them a stuffed animal before sending them off with Virgil. The FBI could find no record of such a group or anyone even remotely close to it. Well, that's how you stay secret is you don't let people know who you are. And John doubles down and says, quote, it's a group that knows what it is doing. We covered our tracks very well, end quote. Even though they had not contacted him, he felt like the boys were safer with these strangers than they would have been with their mother. Now, keep in mind, according to John, These people were just picking the boys up to spend one night so that they could get used to them and they would be returned the next day. This to get these boys away from their abusive mother. The FBI takes these claims of abuse extremely seriously. And along with the Marinci Police Department and Chief Weeks, they investigate these claims of abuse. They found no evidence of abuse in any sense of the word. And the community basically said they didn't know another mother that did more for their children to provide for them than Tanya did. So police offered John a third party to keep the children if they found evidence of abuse. All they needed was for John to tell them where the boys were and they would go get them, give them to a mediary and investigate this. And if they found anything, then they would make sure John got them. Now, keep in mind that Andrew and Alexander were nine and seven at the time. They could have told authorities if any of these allegations of abuse were true. John refused to tell police where they were staying, even If he wanted to, he couldn't tell them because he doesn't know where they are because the Amish Avengers never contacted him again. You have to admit, that's a really kick-ass name, though. It is. Even if he made it up. He did cryptically say that his sons would have to, quote, hibernate until they graduate, end quote. Oh, now he's rhyming. What the fuck, John? Ugh can't tolerate that one week before the boys disappeared john searched on the internet if rat poison will kill people and can you break someone's neck with your bare hands that's not strange i mean who doesn't do that that's great parenting skills i have a couple beers and i start googling all kinds of weird shit i have three kids under the age of nine but okay 
<laughs> when authorities asked John well, about it. Well, if it said, will rat poison kill a child under the age of nine, then you can suspect him, okay? Okay, I'm sorry. But, but until then, judgment. you cannot pass judgment, sir. Okay, I, I apologize. <laughs> I stand corrected, and I have been shamed publicly. <laughs> When authorities asked John about this, he said that the boys had asked him these questions, and so he just Googled it. They're curious boys. That's great parenting right there. Hey, kids, what do y'all want to do? Hey, Daddy, uh, can you break somebody's name? Name. Can you <laughs> break somebody's neck with your bare hands? And uh, you don't, I got another one for you. you. Will rat poison kill people? You don't. You don't know their relationship. Maybe they're just curious young men, and they needed to know. Not at any point did it occur to John to be like, why, A, are you asking me this? And B, you're too young to know any of this, so don't worry about it. He wanted to be the hero dad. True, true. <laughs> A plus parenting skills. All right, move on, man. It's freezing down here. All right, so on November 26th, after returning from Ohio, John dropped off some things at his aunt's house that included the boys' winter coats and their toothbrushes. He supposedly told his aunt that they wouldn't be needing them anymore, and he didn't want their mother to be burdened by the memories. Oh, my Lord. That's, that's, I mean, come on, dude. I don't mean to pass judgment, but. <laughs> you better not. That's you better not. <laughs> uh, he, she said, I'm going to burn this mother to the ground. I, I said, said, you better you not. better not. You better not. She said it was electrical. Oh, yes, totally electrical. <laughs> if you get that reference, that's and then he took off in his waddy tidies. We, we got, got a runner. Yeah, we got a runner. It's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible movie, but that's a funny part. Yeah, it is. All right, searches would continue, and a sighting report of the boys came from the House of Donuts in Sandusky, Ohio. Jerry Sandusky? Mm. According to a waitress, there the boys were seen with a tired and haggard woman in her 40s the Sunday after Thanksgiving. This woman called one of the boys Tanner. The restaurant was not far from the Ohio Turnpike where FBI agents were looking at business surveillance cameras, but this independently owned shop did not have any cameras. This sighting was never confirmed. Get cameras, people. Install them in your business. There's crimes being committed every day, and you could solve and help solve an unsolved mystery. Chief, we... <laughs> I can't... I just couldn't even, I didn't even make eye contact, and I can't. <laughs> All right, so Chief Weeks had not been optimistic once receiving Tanya's call that the boys were alive. And hats off to Chief Weeks because he kept his feelings to himself and waited until a snow day in February when he knew the local school kids would be at home before releasing that the investigation was shifting from a missing child case to a potential murder investigation. He did this so that the kids would be with their families when the news broke so that the family could explain this delicate manner. Again, A-plus police work mm -hmm. with Chief Weeks. Police had no evidence that John Skelton had murdered his son so they could not charge him with murder. They could charge him with kidnapping and unlawful imprisonment on top of the three counts of parental kidnapping that he was currently being held on. These charges would carry a maximum sentence of life in prison prosecution would offer to drop both kidnapping and parental kidnapping if John pled no contest to unlawful imprisonment. This would mean that John would take responsibility for unlawfully taking his sons. 
Now, people were not happy with this deal, but keep in mind that Casey Anthony trial had just happened and some overzealous prosecutors thought they could convict her of murder based on circumstantial evidence. And as we all know, that did not go too well. And keep in mind that while the trial was going on, young John was sitting in prison watching TV awaiting his trial. Now, the DA in Marinci was smart enough to offer the deal because if remains are found, then he could go back and still charge John with murder. This would have been monumentally hard if he had been acquitted of kidnapping charges. It would be hard to arrest him for murder if you had tried to convict him on kidnapping charges and he was found innocent. Now, Tanya supported the deal, and she didn't like it, but she understood why. And Johnny Boy takes the deal. Before John would be sentenced in the criminal trial, there still had to be a divorce hearing. Tanya refused to address John as the boy's father or her husband. She would refer to him by his God-given name or just as the defendant. John's narcissism was on full display in the divorce hearing. Like Coach had stated, he decides he's going to represent himself. John would tell the court that he was a born-again Christian and he had faith that his children were safe and he only wished people would believe him. When questioned on why his phone pinged in Ohio between November 25th and 26th, he would state that his phone may have been there. He wasn't and he could not say any more on that. He had the audacity to ask for joint custody of his kids that are missing, even telling Tanya that she would never see the boys again if she got full custody. Well, he, he, and he also said something along the lines of, how do you feel about the fact that you're never going to see your kids again? I mean, how callous and just, just, ugh, just evil. This was not only seen as a threat to Tanya, but also the court. Basically, John was saying, I will keep them hidden if she gets full custody. Now, Judge No granted the divorce and full custody to Tanya. And this would not be the last time old Johnny Boy would see Judge No. Because being the only judge in Marinci, she gets to preside over his sentencing case in the criminal side. So, on September... 15th of 2011, John Skelton sat in the courtroom waiting to see how long he would be sentenced to prison. Judge No read all of John's crazy-ass stories to him to prove everyone present how big of a liar John actually was. Prosecuting attorney asked John if he was man enough to tell the truth for once and let people know where his boys were. He was not man enough. And he spouted off on how he would have done things differently if he had not felt that the system had failed him and was out to get him, and if people in power had chosen to do their duty over friendship. A system that would not grant him custody. A system that John never contacted to express his concerns of abuse by Tanya on his son. The same system cannot fail you if you never go to the system and ask for help. It's a great point. It's a great point. For his charges, sentencing guidelines are anywhere from 43 to 86 months. Judge No said, hold my beer. 
She sentenced John to 10 to 15 years in federal prison. And to justify her sentencing, she stated, quote, There are substantial and compelling reasons to justify departure. The long-term effect of this crime has not been measured adequately by the guidelines. The guidelines do not account for the loss of these three children on their mother and this community, which is more like that suffered by families of murder victims. Most people could not imagine the pain of not knowing if your children are in good care, dead, or even alive. It is deplorable. End quote. I happen, I gotta agree with her. Through his attorney, John now claimed that he never tried to kill himself. He just broke his foot. When Judge, when Judge No asked how he had broken his foot, he stated he would not like to reveal that information. He then brings the mythical Joanne Taylor up again, stating that she was real and that her and John had built a website together. The prosecuting attorney stated to John that since he was so concerned with his children staying in an abusive situation, why did he not tell his attorney in Florida that he was fleeing with the children due to safety? Why did you not report this to the Marincy police or the Michigan State police once returning from Florida? you decided to hand your sons off to God knows who. In 2012, age progressions were released of the three boys. Also in 2012, Marincy police contacted the John Walsh investigative program to have the Skelton Brothers case featured. In an off-air discussion, John Walsh was heard stating that he would like to waterboard John Skelton. And I second that. In 2014 and again in 2016, age progression photos were once again released of the three boys. In September of 2017, a new lead brought investigators to an outbuilding in Missoula, Montana. Human remains were found by the owner of a rental property who was having one of his rental houses professionally cleaned. The cleaning was required after having to evict hoarders. The cleaners found an old box with human bones in them along with a jawbone and several teeth. Michigan police were very interested in the testing of these bones. Unfortunately, the bones were dated to 99 years old and had been buried for some time before being exposed to the elements. Seeing this story on the news, John contacts a Detroit news station, Channel 4, and explains that the story has put his life in danger at the prison. Inmates were calling him a child killer now. He told the news channel that he was positive those were not his boys. Really? You're positive those bones are not your boys. How sure are you, John? Did you not say that you gave your sons to some strange underground entity to hide them, but they never contacted you back? Are you sure those are not your boys because that is not where you hid them? Now we get into Lynn Thompson, and Lynn Thompson wrote a book titled 76 Minutes, detailing the Skelton Brothers case. In his free time, Lynn would drive around Holiday City, Ohio, and look for locations that were off the beaten path, places that he felt like may have been overlooked by the initial search. He had heard a rumor that a searcher during the initial search had found a stuffed animal near a farm's pasture gate. He remembered John saying that he had, quote, placed a stuffed animal in each of the boys' hands after wrapping them in blanket, blankets before Virgil took them away. Lynn finds the specific gate from the search records and drives through the gate. And this little, uh, I guess, 
tractor path is a better way to explain it, led to the river. Upon further investigation, Lynn determines that this is County Road 0.30, and the land had never been searched due to it being privately owned at the time of the initial search. So Lynn takes his hunch to Steve Towns, the Williams County Sheriff in Williams County, Ohio. Sheriff Towns verifies that it was, the, in fact, the same place that an FBI agent had found a stuffed animal the same night the initial Amber Alert had been issued. Williams County does perform a search of the area. However, they use a drug dog to search the woods. Good job there. And this would have been a great idea if we were looking for some Mexican Bam Bam, but we are looking for human remains. And the police were doing so well up until this point. Mm. Now, during the search, they did find a baseball sitting on a tree stump. It was a 2010 Spalding T-ball. Lynn suggested that they search again with more people and a cadaver dog, but was told there was not enough manpower or time to dedicate to such a search since this was, quote, a reporter's hunch. Again, y'all were doing so well. So Lynn could not shake the feeling that this ball had been placed on this stump as a marker. So doing his due diligence, he begins researching if the Marinci T-Ball League ever used this type of Spalding T-Ball. He tracks down the lot number and begins calling all the places that sell T-Balls. He discovers that this particular type is not sold in stores. So he calls Spalding in Kentucky, and after a lot of transfers, he begins talking with the PR department and is basically told that they don't want any part of this. And they tell him there is no proof that Spalding materials were used in the commission of a crime. Really? We're, he just called to ask if they had ever been shipped to Michigan, and you, like, pull this bullshit. That's, that's CYA, man. They're, I know, but still. They're covering their ass, but, dude. They got to. Uh, anyway. I'm just saying. I know. I don't, I can't, I'm not going to blame them. <laughs> so he again asked if this lot number was ever sent to Michigan, much less Marinci. Again, Spalding's like, mm, me no speak English. So Lynn gives up, and so he contacts the rec department next in Marinci and is told that this type of Spalding ball would have only been used in T-ball tournaments due to their expense. This is not a ball that would have been used for weekly games or practices. So the question is, was this ball used as a marker? We will never know because the only person that knows where the boys are is John Skelton, and he is not talking. Now, John is scheduled for parole as early as November of 2021. and oh, That's just not going to happen. And the latest he will be paroled is November of 2025. In closing, let us look at the Amish Avengers. Detroit's Channel 4 News, and Coach had already alluded to this, interviewed the local Amish and Mennonite communities and asked if a group like this even existed. And if it did, would they have taken the kids and not, not contacted the parents? Those interviewers, or I'm sorry, those interviewed said there is a zero chance that even if a group like this existed that they would quote kidnap kids they would turn the kids over to authorities citing an unsafe home so johnny boy your story stinks like a load of 
Amish fertilizer. And that is the case of the Skelton Brothers. Well, I think it's pretty clear if just by listening that you're going to guess what our theories are. Is that that some bitch had something to do with it? Yep. And unfortunately, I think they're dead. Yeah. Unfortunately, because I agree with you. Here's the thing: is it's been ten years, so we're talking nineteen year old, eighteen year old, or whatever. Yeah, fifteen, seventeen, and nineteen. Fifteen, seventeen, and nineteen. If they're around, they're going to. At some point, they're going to try to figure out. Like a nine year old is aware. Nine-year-old, even a five-year-old's aware that they have been taken from their mother. They have been taken from their life. At some point, they're going to reach out. And and I think back Unless they've to, been kidnapped, unless they, they're they prisoners, they've been brainwashed, but... Well, think back to Tan, young little Tanner when he comes back to the house. He runs in and hides behind his mama's leg because he missed her so much. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. Unfortunately, I agree with you. I think... These kids never saw Friday, Black Friday of 2010. I don't know if, you know, how, why, where, but, you know, I just have a sinking feeling that they are buried somewhere and the only person that knows is John and he will not talk. And it, when he does talk, no one believes a damn word coming out of his mouth because he's changed his story a hundred times. for his parents. They believe every word, every word he, he said. Every word the man said. Yeah. I, guess. I saw on that documentary, there was a thing, part of the part where their parents. Held that press conference outside the. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that. I'm oh. talking about when they interviewed him recently. The father said that he was getting gas one day and somebody walked up to him and said, to his back and said, don't turn around. said, don't turn around, but I can assure you, your grandkids are safe. And the guy left, and the father never, the well, the grandfather of the missing kid never turned around. Didn't turn around. When the guy walked off, didn't try to get a glance, didn't nothing. No. He just, nah, man, I'm just going to get my guest. So, he gets it honest. <laughs> so, according to him, the boys are safe. So. Okay, man. This one makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah, it's it's sad, very very sad and tragic. But so recommendations, I will go first. Uh, I recommend that you watch the Stephanie Harlow two part YouTube thing that she did on the Skelton Brothers. She did a tremendous job, and she has over one million uh, Facebook, I mean YouTube followers. So uh, she's making bank. So she did very good in her research. And I want to give her credit for my research because most of my research came from her. So if you are interested in that poem, like I said, listen to her part one. And she does a good job. It is a pot, It is a, um, a YouTube video that you can just turn on and do other things. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested. Some of the, sometimes those are just wonderful. Yeah. And these are both parts are about an hour, hour and ten minutes long. Oh, wow. She does a, a wonderful job. Your recommendation, sir? I'm going to recommend a company called Mythical Meats. It is a beef jerky company that names their their different things after cryptids and after mythological creatures like the griffin and the werewolf and the Loch Ness Monster and the whatnot. I just got their humanoid uh, box to, uh, 
a variety pack tonight, and I've already eaten two of them. <laughs> <laughs> they were so good. They're, they're delicious, and I just love the fact that what sold me on, I'm trying to get them to be a sponsor. They're not keen to it, but they might change their mind. What cracks me up, makes me giggle, is the fact what sold me on the whole company is when you look at it, it says Griffin, Griffin beef jerky, and then like underneath it's like not actual Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite part. It's, it's actually duck. <laughs> Their duck is it's good. It's really good. So that's my recommendation. If you do happen to reach out and buy some, drop send, our name. Send them an email. Send, send, send them an email. Let them know that you heard about them here. Heard about them here first. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the case of the Skelton Brothers. And tune in next week. Same bat time. Same bat channel. Deuces.